Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Let's fast forward now. We're going to put it fast forward. So you know that family tree, Abraham, Isaac. Isaac has two sons you might have heard of, Jacob and Esau. Now, which of the two of those become prominent in the storyline? Jacob. Now, Esau does have descendants. They were called the Edomites, right? And if you read through the Old Testament, there was ongoing racial tension between the Edomites and the Israelites, but you can read all that on another day. And it goes the whole way back to Jacob and Esau because Jacob, God renamed him Israel. Does that sound familiar? Thank you, Wayne. Okay, good. I'm going to have to work really hard this morning. I already broke a sweat, so I'll work hard. Why do I do all this? Because the more that you engage in this, the more you learn. Otherwise, we're all just wasting our time. I don't, I don't think you came here to waste your time today. I think you came here to learn. So I want to make sure you're getting this. This is important, or I wouldn't waste your time with it. Trust me. Jacob has lots of kids, right? How many, how many you know, the blank tribes of Israel? Right. So Jacob has lots of kids. His third son is a young man by the name of Levi, very famous guy, the, the father of Denim. Just trying, okay, just seeing, testing some things out. Levi is his third son. Now, what were the Levites famous for? What, what were they known for? Who did, what type of career did they produce out of their tribe? Priests, okay. Levi has, and I won't make you name all the names, I won't read them to you. Levi has three sons. His middle son has four sons. The oldest of Levi's grandchildren, the firstborn, is a man by the name of Amram. Okay? And Amram has three children. A daughter named Miriam, a middle child named Aaron, and a son named... So you get the family tree now? We're not too far away from Isaac. Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. Jacob's third son is Levi. He has three kids. His middle child has Amram, who has Moses. There's going to be a quiz next week. You're like, I'm sleeping in that Sunday. No. I want you to understand where Moses came from, what tribe he came from, and how he's connected to promises God made that we studied last week in Genesis. This week, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, Second book of the Bible. Genesis is the book of firsts, the book of origin, where we came from, why we're here, what went wrong, and how God decided to fix it. Exodus um, starts off a little dark. It's pretty dark. In fact, let me refresh your memory. I kind of buried this last week, but I put it in there for a reason. I want to reread to you from Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. This is a conversation between God and Abraham, where God is making, some people will call it a prediction. It was. Knowing God the way I know, it was a promise. But this is not one that sounds very exciting on the front end. God's talking to Abraham in chapter 15 about the future living conditions of Abraham's descendants who aren't even born yet. It's, this is, So far beyond, God's not only presupposing that Abraham's going to have kids, he's assuming that his kids are going to have a lot of kids, and he's even telling Abraham about how their lives are going to look. And Abraham's sitting here like, God, I'm like 85, not getting any younger, have no children, wife can't have kids. You promised me 11 years ago kids, still haven't seen them. God's like, listen, you're going to have kids. Let me tell you about what their future's like. Okay, here's what he says. Genesis 15, verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Does that sound good? No. Lord, why are you, thanks God, just, could you just let me die happy? Why do you have to tell me about this? Would that make you excited about starting a whole family? No, (laughs) aren't you thankful that the next word is however? (laughs) However, I will punish the nation that enslaves them. 
And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. Now, that sounds better. God says, Abraham, in the future, your own children are going to live as strangers in a foreign land. Abraham's probably thinking, but you just gave me all this land. What's going to happen that this that they won't live free in this land, that they're going to go to another land, and they're going to be strangers, and they're going to be oppressed as slaves, and then somehow you're going to deliver them, you're going to punish the people who put them into slavery, and they're going to walk out of there with wealth. Now, those of you that have read through Exodus, does that sound like that promise came true? Hmm. All right, we'll work on that today. Then we'll, we'll, we'll fast forward, we'll get into it. I can show you how it unfolds. I'll fast forward. Abraham, let me take you from Abraham to Moses. Let me see if I can do it in two. Oh, I just went to 39. One minute. Let me see if I can do it. Okay, you listen fast. I'll talk faster. Got it? Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 kids. The kid you're probably most familiar with of Jacob's kids is Joseph. Have you heard of Joseph? Coat of many colors, Potiphar's wife, dreams, cupbearer, Pharaoh, promoted to vice Pharaoh. God... He's really good. God speaks very clearly to Joseph about the future, and God uses Joseph's credibility to earn the trust of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Joseph tells the Pharaoh, look, there's famine coming. And Pharaoh's thinking, really? No, we're in times. Economy's good right now. Joseph is like recession and inflation and problems are coming. We need to stack up cash right now. So that when we're in a down economy, we have some savings we can eat off of. Now, how good of advice is that? What makes it better is that Pharaoh said, I'll believe that. And so they start stacking up the harvests, and then famine hits. Well, guess who's living not in another land where famine also hits? Well, that's Joseph's dad, Jacob, and all his relatives. In fact, isn't that the circumstance by which Jacob sends Joseph's estranged brothers to Egypt to see if they can somehow scrounge enough money that they can get a government subsidy? Does this sound familiar at all? Have we lived through anything like this, right? It's, It's nothing new. It's been happening for thousands of years. Sends them down to Egypt, The whole plan unfolds. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. God uses that whole situation to bring them together. And one of the most famous statements in Genesis comes out of that, right? When the brothers realize, oh my gosh, this is the guy we're coming to to help is actually our long lost brother that we did dirty, that we betrayed. We told our daddy was dead. And Joseph says, listen, what the enemy intended for evil, I'm going to use for good. I'm going to turn it all around, right? And so you get this awesome story of forgiveness, and healing. Well, Joseph ultimately subsidizes the relocation of his entire genealogy that was alive on the earth. Jacob's, Israel's family, at that point we get a number. There's 70 of them, about 70. It's in the end of Genesis, we see this. The entire bloodline of Abraham, all of his descendants on the face of the earth at that point, they're going to die if they don't relocate to Egypt. They won't last out the famine. They move to Egypt, end scene of Genesis. Well, between the end of Genesis chapter 50 and the story we're going to read today is one short chapter that packs in a lot of history. And what we learn is that eventually, of course, Joseph died. All Joseph's brothers died. Jacob died. But their descendants who start the book of Exodus with only 70 people are very populous. And over the next few generations, they grow, they grow, they grow. They're having more babies and more babies and more babies. Now, they're living in Egypt as strangers in a foreign land. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 15, check. Well, the old Pharaoh who liked Joseph, he died too. And over the generations, a new Pharaoh comes to power in Egypt. He knows nothing about Joseph. He knows nothing about how kind Joseph was to his own empire. He sees this group of foreigners as a threat to his way of life, to his power, to Egyptian rule. 
and he starts getting insecure and intimidated. The Bible says these Israelites were growing at such a pace that they were very soon outnumbering the Egyptians. And Pharaoh looks around and says, we need to do something about the population. He says, if they continue to grow like this, it is very likely that they will forge an alliance with some other empire, some other kingdom, and they'll work together and they'll overthrow us. So we need to, we need to turn on them before they turn on us. And so Pharaoh starts hatching a strategy to subdue the Israelites. And his first idea is, let's put them into slavery. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 15. You'll live as, your descendants will live as strangers in a foreign land. They will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. It's happening right here in Exodus chapter 1. Well, what happens is, the, the, Exodus chapter 1 tells us, the more, it backfires on him. He, he issues an edict to his people, let's subdue the Israelites. Let's force them into slavery. Well, Exodus chapter 1 summarizes the Israelite response. The more they were oppressed, the more they grew strong. Well, Pharaoh sees this isn't work. Not only are they, not only are they getting stronger, they're having more kids. We need to ratchet things up. Let's make the slavery even more oppressive. Let's be more physically violent. That didn't work. They still kept growing and growing and growing. Then he says, let's pass a law that all of the midwives need to, when the, let's issue, that all the Hebrew midwives, when they were helping to deliver children of the Hebrew people, if it was a girl, they'd let the girl live. If it was a boy, they'd kill the boy. Well, that kind of backfired on them. The midwives basically said, no, we're not going to do that. So that didn't work. So finally, the last straw was he makes a law. He issues an edict that says, let every male child born to Hebrew families be immediately thrown into the Nile River and drowned. It's called infanticide. He says, uh, what's the exact quote? We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. So he resorted to population control. Now, if, you're, if your ears are pricking up a little bit because it's about Christmas time, I would just encourage you, I decided in advance not to go down this rabbit trail. But read back through this story again this week if you, have, if you do have time. Read back through this story. And think in your mind, is there, where are all the similarities between the way God brought Moses into the world and the way God brought Jesus into the world? Wasn't there a similar edict surrounding Jesus' birth? Didn't Jesus have to be hidden to preserve his life? And where was he hidden? Where does this story take place? Yeah. Don't both of these babies have wrapped up in them the future freedom of a kingdom? There's a lot. Of, I, I, I promise I wouldn't go deep down. Okay, I'm not going to go deep into it. I just want to also remind you the Bible is living and active. You can go through a story a thousand times and God will bring new stuff out to you. You never wring the Bible of all that it has in it. That's just another way you can go through this story this week and learn and appreciate what it is. So this sets the whole backdrop for Moses coming into the world, okay? So with that in mind, um, I love this. I'll just read this one quote to you. There's an old Hebrew proverb that says, so when, the, when, when, when Jews retell this story, there's a Hebrew proverb that says, when the tail of the bricks is doubled. In other words, you know, when, when our ancestors in slavery were forced to work even harder and make even more bricks, then comes Moses, when the tail of the bricks is doubled, then comes Moses. So in their mind, they connect the increasing of the oppressiveness of slavery with Moses coming to the world. So now that I've nerded out and given you the genealogy and the history, it's going to make understanding this much easier. Let's read Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, why did I give you all that? Because of these first three words. About this time. You need to know what time it was. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. It's interesting. Why not use their names? A man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. Well, Pastor Phil, why is that a big deal? Well, here's what's interesting to me. You need to keep this in mind. Who is given credit for writing Exodus? <laughs> Moses. Who's he writing about here? His parents. 
and he doesn't use their name until chapter six. It's just interesting to me. Now, they have names. Dad's name was Amram. Anybody know mom's name? It's not an easy one to remember. Jochebed. You're like, I don't know. They'll become more important to you as we go throughout the story. Um, they're both from what tribe? And they get married. Now, this is much, listen, Moses' birth story is much different than Isaac's. Man and woman meet, man and woman get married, man and woman get, you know, well, not man and woman get pregnant. That's a whole different kind of history. The, the woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son. So, like, two sentences, we've, we've gone from, you know, uh, whatever, courtship to having kids. Isaac's story much longer. She saw that the baby was a special baby. Now, in today's day, that could be a, oh, your baby's really, um special you know like you could it could be a way that you're you're trying not to say something so I mean that actually that word actually is the is the Hebrew word tov you know matzel tov you get all the anyway it means beautiful or good now who's writing this again I was a beautiful baby I was special she saw that she, she he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months now why would she try and keep this beautiful? When you have a beautiful baby, don't you want people to see you? Instagram and this and that and the other and come look at my baby. Don't touch, but come look. You know, and, oh, what a beautiful baby. Oh, what a beautiful baby. And then something, oh, that, yeah, that's a baby. You know, you didn't. You, anyway, uh, she saw that he was beautiful, but when she could no longer hide him. So here was my question from chapter two. I know they're trying to keep me on track here. Uh, chapter two. Why would she hide him for three months again? He's a boy. And if he's found out by any Egyptians, what would happen to him? Throw him in the river. And you're thinking, well, why would they be worried about them? Well, they lived in communities that weren't ethnic specific. In the land where they lived, where he grew up, you would have had Egyptian families living within earshot and eyesight of Hebrew families. Have you ever tried to keep a baby quiet? Not easy. I would love to know the backstory here. But keep that in mind. When she could no longer hide him, now what would make it difficult to hide a three-month-old? Just talk to me. They cry. Their lungs. They need room to move around. The bigger he gets and the stronger his lungs are, she's like, this baby, we just can't, can't keep him quiet. She got a basket Okay, translation, the, the Hebrew word there is used in only one other passage in the Old Testament for basket. Do you know where it was used? Yes. Ruth Ann, you did your homework. It, it, the only other place in the whole Old Testament that word is used, it's used in the story of Noah, translated ark. She made him a little ark. I, and I wish I could nerd out on the rest of this. I can't. Made out of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. I'll just tell you this. Go back and read the Noah story and look at how he built the ark. You're going to see some familiar words and other things in there. Anyway, she put the baby in the basket. What kind of trust do you have to have in God as a mom? I'm having a hard time sending, thinking about sending my oldest to middle school. I can't even imagine. Now, it's different if I can go in the school with him and make sure the bullies leave him alone. A whole different kind of trust. I'm going to show you in a moment that it goes far beyond just paternal instinct. There's something spiritual that had happened in Amram and Jehochebed's life, and Jochebed's life, that allowed them to do this. But anyway, along the bank of the Nile River. Now, I read some commentators that said, what kind of faith does it take to put a baby in a basket and send them down the Nile? Please see with me, she was not putting her baby in moving water and just sending him down the river. She laid it among the reeds, which are things that grow up out of the water, along the bank. She intentionally puts the, the ark, the, well, the little ark, the mini ark, the basket, in a place of the Nile where hopefully it would not be caught by the current. She's not completely like, you know, let's just send him down the river and hope for the best. Fingers crossed. No, she's like, there's every step of the way here does not indicate parental abandonment. 
or mental illness or recklessness. Every little step of this process, think about how much care she would have waterproofed that little basket with. The handiwork she put into that had more attention than anything. If you, were, if you had a couple days to make a waterproofed raft to put your baby in, that's probably going to be the best waterproof raft you could possibly make as a parent. I do the same thing. When I'm assembling something for me, it's one thing. But when I was building bunk beds for the boys, I'm like, I better make sure everything is exactly the way it should be because I'm putting them in it. If it's me, it's one thing. If it's them, it's another. So she puts, puts, it along, puts the baby in the basket along. Baby's sister, who was whom? Miriam. We see her all through Moses' story, don't we? His older sister, the firstborn of Amram and Jochebed, then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. So there's care and love baked into this whole, um, this whole process. I, just, I kind of com- commented as we went along. Here's an application point I draw out of this. It's worth protecting things that are divine. If something is divine, now what do I mean by divine? If I asked you, give me a list of things in your life that you consider to be divine. What is divine? Can anybody give me just a working, simple definition of divine? It's describing something. It's good. Okay. That's a good start. I would also say, is it possible you could have good things in your life that are not divine? Possible? Okay. But I would say it's, yeah, it's good. From God. There is a... Bear with me. If you've ever seen the Toy Story movies, which are fantastic pieces of cinema, I've seen them thousands of times. On the bottom of Woody the Sheriff's shoe is what, if you've seen it? The name of Andy. Andy is the little boy who is the owner. So please don't get... Pixar people, please don't get mad at me that I'm saying that. He, he's the boy who, the toy belongs to him. And he puts his name on the toy shoe. And constantly throughout the movies, whenever there's a question about identity and the toys want to run rogue, you know, Woody's reminding them, no, this is who we belong to. His name is written on my feet. And that name written on my feet distinguishes me from all other toys. Something that's divine is something that God's put in your life that his name is on. That's divine. And in the Toy Story movies, again, I'm trying to draw a parallel between your life and a pretend. Yeah, it's pretend. A pre, I'm sorry, any of the little kids in the room. I'm trying to draw a parallel between you and Woody in the Toy Story movie. That's where we're at this morning, okay? But there's some things in your life that God has written his name on. And because of that, those things deserve to be treated as holy and sacred. They deserve to be protected above all else. Now, with that in mind, what is something that might be in your life that has a divine characteristic to it? Your marriage. I heard, I heard something right here. Good. Children. Good. What else? Yourself. What else? Talents. Good. Your gifts. Yes. Your calling. Well, I don't have one, just ministers to. No, 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 no. We all have things that we're called to. How about your relationship with the Lord? Is that divine? How about the time you spend with him every day? Is that divine? How about the relationships that you have? Well, no, those are things I made. Isn't there a divine characteristic to the relationships that you have? There are certain things in your life that are divine. And I would suggest to you, many of them are unprotected. Or they're not protected with the way that you would if you understood they were divine. You need to protect. Not only your marriage, you need to protect someone else's marriage. Not only your children, but someone else's children. How about this? You have a relationship with God, or you should, that is special, that is divine, that is sacred. What are you doing now to protect that? Let me take it one level further. If you're married, how do you protect 
the sacredness of your spouse's relationship with Jesus? Are you making it easier for them to relate to Jesus or are you driving them away from Jesus? Are you making it easier for them to be the man or the woman that God's called them to be or are you constantly provoking them to be somebody other in that relationship with Jesus? What about your children? What about their calling? Joseph and Mary. Yeah, that's three weeks from now. Amram and Jochebed. I'll show you in a moment. They understood there was something spiritually unique and special about the future of their son. Now, that did not make him any better or worse than their other two kids, both of whom were born before the edict was made. But I want you to see this. I don't think, go out on a limb here, I don't think it's that unthinkable or uncommon for a parent living in this day and age to want to do anything they could to protect their son. I think almost any one of us who was born in this day and age, if God brought a son into your life and it required you making a waterproofed ark, you would have tried it out. I think parents living in this day and age, I see any time that your child is in danger, something comes out of you. That love, that protection, that parental instinct that says, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure my child survives. If you look on your child who's in jeopardy with indifference, I question your sanity. I don't think that's that unusual. Like, Pastor, you're being sacrilegious? No. I'm just saying this is not even the part of the story that the Bible itself holds up as unusual. Now, if you download the notes... You can go through the back and you can see all the different books I looked into. And some of them are called commentaries. They're filled with comments. And they're very useful for me in understanding what's written in the Bible about a passage. However, I will tell you there is one source you can go to that trumps them all for a commentary. If you want to read the best possible source for understanding the Bible is... The Bible itself. And in this case, the best insight we get to this passage isn't even in this passage. Moses doesn't even include it. But the best insight that we get about what's going on here is found later on in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. I want to read that to you. Because this answers, not only does it introduce the next point, but it answers the question, what was really motivating Abraham and Jochebed to put their baby in a basket. And I just told you it's because they recognized something divine about Moses. What I haven't told you is how did they know that there was something not only humanly important about this baby's life, but there was something spiritually important about the destiny on their child's life? Well, we get it in the New Testament. When we find out how centuries later, the Hebrew people looked back on this same story. And you're going to get in verse 23, a commentary on Exodus chapter 2. Here it is. It was by faith. Now, this is a chapter typically called the Faith Hall of Fame, right? And isn't it interesting, the story of Moses, they don't put Moses as the first inductee. They talk about two other people that they don't even name. But look at this. It was by faith that Moses is parents hid him for three months when he was born. Now, this is important. What was the primary motivation from Moses's parents putting in all the hard work of hiding their son? It was not fear. It wasn't even being, it wasn't even parental love. It was what? It was faith. They recognized that they needed something above and beyond. They were tapping into something even more than genuine parental concern to keep their baby quiet, to try and conceal him, to try and protect him. To, he's making too much noise. We need to move into a place where there's less ears around. Let's put him out in a basket and, 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 and put him out in a place where he can cry, where he can stay alive without being discovered. Without Why? It wasn't just we want our baby to live it was something in their heart. They see their, They saw that God had given them an unusual child. Well, Pastor, what does that mean? I'm going to give you a very unsatisfying answer, but it's limited by what's revealed to us. Some way, somehow, 
God revealed to Amram and Jochebed, I have a special purpose for your son that he's going to fulfill. That is different than Miriam. I have a purpose for her. Then Aaron, I have a purpose for him. But this one is unusual. Now, how did they know? Did God tell them out loud? Did he send an angel? Did he send a talking bird? Did he write on a wall? Did he send a burning bush? Did he? I don't know. But all I know is that the one common characteristic between Hebrews 11, that says this is how they knew he was unusual, and Exodus chapter 2, this is how Moses learned later on that they thought that he was unusual, is that they saw it in him. There's some interesting Hebrew proper. I can't go down the trail this morning about how he was when he got old. They saw God that him. All I'm telling you, the best quote that I got is this um, from Spence and Exel. Moses' beauty was to his parents a presage of his illustrious career. Here's the important sentence. His appearance awakened or strengthened their confidence and the divine interest in the life of their child. How do you know something's divine? Something will stir or awaken inside of you and tell you this is something bigger than me. This is divine. Well, how do I know that? You have to walk close to Jesus and listen to him. What I'm showing you is this. When you recognize something in your life is divine, it's worth you protecting it, treating it with a little bit more sacredness. You want to see the life in your home turn around? Start recognizing what things are divine and protect those. Esteem those. Practice those. Be inventive. Be ingenious. Be courageous. Be creative. Protect those things that are divine. Those things in your life, I had a whole bunch of stories, don't have time, but you have to recognize what they are. They saw, they had somebody on their hands that there was a divine purpose for their life. It was so unusual. They're like, we need to protect him. Not more than our, Miriam and Aaron did not need the same type of protection that Moses did. Does that make sense to you? They weren't grandfathered into the you have to kill the kids law. Miriam was a girl and Aaron had been born before the law was passed. They didn't need that kind of protection. Moses did. And so they did. Can't tell if I'm getting through or not. Let's move on to point number two. His mom goes to work and creates this little tiny ark. And I love pulling this out of this passage because I think you've lived this out. Application number two. Um, Faith in God inspires ingenuity and courage. When you deeply believe something, you know what it does? It unlocks in you a creativity, an ingenuity. It inspires you to try things you wouldn't ordinarily try because you're convinced there is a divine characteristic to this. And so I don't exactly understand how this is all going to get done, but if God's in it, I'm going to open my mind up to some possibilities I might not in other situations simply because I believe that this is part of God's plan for my life. I believe this is something that God wants. I believe God is blessing this. He is in this. He has authored this. And I'm so convinced that he has. Even though he hasn't shown me the whole groundwork of how it's going to get there, I am willing to try different things to position myself in such a way that I can see God's plan unfold. Faith in God will inspire ingenuity. It will also inspire courage. If we go back to Hebrews eleven twenty three, let me finish that, that passage out for you. They saw God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. Here you have a family who say, listen, we're at a choice. We obey God or we obey the king's command. And here is one instance in Scripture where you have permission to not obey the king. It's when the king is asking you to do something in contradiction to the Lord's law. And they said, we're going to obey God instead of, man, it gave them courage to do this. So why in the world would a parent choose to put their three-month-old in a basket in a river? The parents of Moses did not hide him only because of their natural parental instinct. They did it also out of faith in God. They hid him for three months. Once he cried so much, it's like, we're going to have to come up with this plan. Where did she come up with this crazy plan? I don't know. She couldn't Google it. There were no YouTube videos. I don't know if there were any of her girlfriends that were doing the same type of thing. I don't know where it came from. It was a combination probably of desperation, but I don't see desperation here. I see someone who say, 
God's hand is on my son. He's too big now for us to hide in the house. We don't have a whole lot of options. She hatches this creative idea. I look around this room, and I know some of you enough to know that your life today is the fruit of something ingenious you tried because of your faith. Something creative, something out of the box, something that was a combination of your willingness to try, your trust in the Lord, and some courage it took to put those things into motion. The whole fact that Echo Community Church is 12 years old is the fruit of some faith-inspired ingenuity for some people that are here today and some people that aren't. That aren't. I mean, I think about ingenuity that Julie Burke has brought to this church. To be willing to get up every Sunday and run tech and set it up, to load it out of a trailer, whether hot or cold or flat tires or full. Every Sunday for 12 years, whether it's in a movie theater or a high school or a middle school or an elementary school or a pavilion or a parking lot? Why would anybody, anybody give 12 years of their life to do that? And not every day was a good day, right, Julie? But to keep, and she's the tech director. They're not overwhelmed with compliments. You don't recognize when the sound is good. It's only when something feeds back. Everybody looks around. It's never loud enough or quieted enough. The lights are never bright enough or dim enough. And yet, you would be staggered if you saw how much ingenuity God has put in that young lady's heart to make things go, to make things work. Now, why? Well, because she's committed to a good cause. Eh. You know why? It's because of her faith. She believes God spoke to her life and some other people's lives that he wanted to plant a church in this community where she graduated from high school. She believes that God has given her gifts and talents and creative ability to bring to this church. And even when things didn't look good, she still did it. Why? Faith. She just believed that God was in it. I mean, goodness, when COVID hit 2020, it messed us all up, didn't it? We were three months into a building program here and found out we could not meet here or at the high school. We didn't know when we could meet. That's not a good business model for anything. But this is not primarily a business. This is the house of God. But we're like, what are we going to do to minister our people? I didn't have a whole lot of ideas, but I remember sitting around a table and how do we get together? And Julie's like, well, if I could run electric from here to here, And she starts talking. And if you've ever been around Julie in a creative conversation, she gets these bursts of inspiration and she just lays it all out verbally. And you just sit there and and I just nod my head. I can't follow a third of what she's saying. I'm not smart enough, but it sounds really good. Here I am as the pastor wondering, God, what are you going to do in this? And how are you going to? And she's just saying, well, if we could run electric from here to here, I could put us. And we had a meeting out here. She's like, if we could park the cars this way. And James is like, yeah, I got that. I could run with that. And if we put a tent up over here, we could get people here. And I can get this piece from Amazon that will help us broadcast over this frequency. And if the cars sit this way, and I'm just sitting there like, this is going to work. This was the equivalent of us getting papyrus and tar and pitch and hoping for the best. And then I showed up that Sunday morning. She had two pickup trucks pulled in there side by side. And she's like, okay, if you can climb up in this pickup truck bed and wear this, we can push the sound from here to here. And we had church. Now, it wasn't record attendance, I'll be honest with you. But some of you were here. That was the thread that kept Echo afloat in an uncertain time. Now, where did that come from? Well, there was some ingenuity involved. Not from me. Heaven help you if it would have been up to me to figure out how to even run power from here to there. I don't have those gifts. But somebody, and it was more than her, but I mean, somebody had faith that God was in this. And if he's in this, why not try? And we kind of came, what if it doesn't work? And we just kind of, what's the worst that can happen? Let's fail for Jesus. You know, like, like, what's the worst that can happen here? It doesn't work. We try something else. Ingenuity. 
and courage. I could go around this room. You know, I think it wouldn't take long. I mean, I think about Carrie and Jean, your courage to even be willing to open your possibilities up to having children again after the loss of your daughter. That took courage. Where did that come from? It came from your faith. It didn't come from a whole bunch of handwritten cards or TED Talks. It came from faith. I'm going to be brave enough to open myself up to this because I feel like there's a divine something over my life. And even though that I've not seen my circumstances move in that direction, I can't explain it, but I have faith. And that faith gives me courage to listen to God and not popular opinion, right? You know, I think, you know, Wayne and Gwen Leatherman are traveling today. I think about when I first met Wayne, you know, he had just ended one season of career, of his career, not by his own choosing. His corporation he had worked for for years and years and years brought his employment there to a close. And when I first met them, he's like, I'm going to pivot and I'm going to learn how to be a contractor. This is not something we normally decide to do in these seasons of our lives. Let me just stop one career and pick a whole different one. But he had faith that the Lord spoke to him and Gwen, and this is what they were supposed to do. And I look at that journey now, 10 years down the road, he's built a wonderful uh, commercial construction company with tons of employees, and God's blessing them, and they bless the church, and they serve. That took courage, and it took ingenuity. I promise you there's some things in your life that you know by faith that God has for you and he's called you to and he's put his fingerprint on it and, it, and you might not see the plan, but he's gonna give you, it's gonna inspire ingenuity and some creativity in your life to try some things for the Lord. And he's gonna supply for you the courage that you need to tackle it. So I don't want you to dismiss these faith ideas that God plants in your heart simply because you don't have the strategy or you don't feel faith, you don't feel brave enough to do it. Look at Moses' parents for inspiration. They had no blueprint for this. They tried. God gave them a creative idea. Look, it looks brilliant to us now. I don't know how brilliant it seemed then. How wise did it seem to put your baby in the water and hope for the best? You can peel all the different layers back to the story, but I hope that inspires you. I hope that encourages you. It when you connect to God deeply, by, if you feel a deficit in your ingenuity or in your courage, lean on your faith. And that thing will supply, supply it for you. Let me keep going. Verse 5, Exodus chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. We'll finish it out right here. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, okay, it wasn't floating down the river, it was among the reeds. She seized the basket she sent her maid to get the basket for her. And why do they do all this? Just how quick of a side note can I give you? Um, Egyptians worshipped, they were polytheistic, which means they worshipped many different gods. Three of their primary ones were Ra, the sun god, and I won't give you all the other names, I forget them. The sun god, the, the god of the river, which starts with an O, and then, the, funny enough, the god of the frogs, or three of their main gods. Now, I'm just planting that little idea in your mind. When you think for it a little bit, what was God really doing with the plagues? He was also showing the futility. Of, oh, you worship the sun? Awesome. What about when it's dark? Now who are you going to worship? The sun? Who's more powerful? Oh, you think there's this God of the river that bring, the God of the river that brings benevolent things in your life, which is probably what Pharaoh's daughter is thinking. Well, the God of the river sent me a, pa- a package in this beautiful little handcrafted basket. What about when it turns blood? Then who's more powerful? You worship the frogs? What are you going to do when they're all up in your bed and your cabinets and your cupboards? Just planting that thought for, we won't get to it, but just putting that there. Because I'm sorry. Uh, The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. Isn't the precision of when the boy starts crying is so important in this story? Because you take something that's almost irresistible to this young lady's heart is the crying of a helpless little baby. Maybe if he's not crying, this story goes in a different direction and it doesn't open compassion. She opened it. She saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said, verse 7. Then the baby's sister, who is Miriam approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She asked. And here is another whole sermon on good suggestions. This might be the best suggestion in the Old Testament. Do you know how much value believers who walk close to Jesus have to offer the world in terms of just suggestions made at the right time in the right attitude and in the right spirit? Are you living in such a way 
that when there's a need for a godly suggestion, that you can bring it up at the right time. Could be the right suggestion, wrong time. Couldn't we do a whole segment just on that? Good idea, terrible time to say it. But in the right spirit, people bring me suggestions all the time. I just say, bring them in the right spirit. Because they don't usually come as suggestions. I wouldn't resist my urge to, to go deep. But, but I tell my staff all the time, you can come to me about anything, but come in the right spirit. Because if your spirit's wrong, your suggestion's going to get lost in the wind. It's just going to be an instrument of offense. The right time, the right spirit, the right attitude. Should I go find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, why is this happening? Well, the Egyptian midwives and the Egyptian people did not know how to nurse and raise Hebrew babies. So if Pharaoh's daughter was going to care for this baby in perpetuity, she, needed, she could not give the baby what the baby needed. She needed a Hebrew woman to do that. So the princess says, yes, go and do this right away. So the girl went, and who did she get? Miriam went and got Jochebed. So much in here. I would just summary. Jochebed's faith in God is immediately rewarded. And you think this is good? Can you imagine how thrilled Jochebed must have been when Miriam came back? Now, some writers would say they hatched this all out in advance, that this was all part of it. Let's put the baby at a place where we know they might be found. It was regular for Egyptian women to come down and bathe in the Nile, at least ceremonially or ritually, because they believed that it, you know, that water was holy and part of their homage to the God of the, the river was to bathe themselves there. And she suspected that. Maybe someone would find them and Miriam would come out and they'd try. I don't know. All I know is that God knew, and this came out this way. She, uh, take this boy, nurse him for me. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. What? Jochebed is now going to get paid by the government to be a mom to her son. Come on. Isn't this just like God? Now, I won't go through the statistics of what it tells you would actually cost to pay a mom in <laughs> secular dollars for all the different things. And it, it just, it's amazing. So the woman took the boy home and nursed him on the government's dime. How beautiful is this? Verse 10. Later, when the boy was older, Jochebed brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. All I can tell you about this is that, no, the Egyptian culture did not have formal adoption like we do. That word basically means she brought him into, that, into her home and just raised him with all the benefits and privileges as if he were her own son. You do understand who her dad was? What was Pharaoh's son next in line for? Yes! Do you see this? By her doing this, it sets Moses up to be the next Pharaoh. You know what he got? He got all the best education. He grew up around the court system. He knew how it worked to approach the Pharaoh and how you had to ask him things. He knew who all the players were. He got the very best education in the whole system. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. And you understand now, as you see this thread weave through here, to what future advantage would it be for Moses to grow up in that house that way? First of all, he'd live. Second of all, he got the very best education. Third of all, he got to understand the inner workings of the Egyptian government. Now, would that play a role in him knowing how to approach them in the future? Absolutely. All these little details are woven into not only Moses' story, but in the entire story of the Exodus, the entire fate of that kingdom is wrapped up in a helpless little baby. Here's what I'll leave with you. I wish I had time to tease this out. I don't, but this is my heart in a nutshell. If I could do it all over again, I would have preached this the first Sunday when I tried out to be the pastor here. I would have landed on this point right here. There is unspeakable potential in every infant's life. Unspeakable. We might not ever be excellent in teaching, preaching, television, radio, podcasts. This face is not designed for a big social media following. <laughs> There's things that God gifts some of his individual local churches to do with excellence. And I don't know if that's ever God's intention here. But here's something that I said when I came here, and I mean this to this day, you know, ten and a half years in. I value ministry to kids. 
I value ministry to middle school students. I value ministry to high school students. And if we're going to make sacrifices and concessions here and there, I can live with that. But that's non-negotiable to me. I want the very best for your kids in terms of ministry from this church. Why? Because there's unspeakable potential in every infant's life. When I'm no longer able to do what I do, some other people are going to raise up and fill those spots. And it's going to come from people younger than me. And where are they going to get this if people aren't willing to make space for every child? I don't know the potential of every child, but I know this baby had a whole kingdom wrapped up in his life. A whole kingdom. I've gotten to see that in some of our kids. You know, and I met Daniel when he was in first or second grade, and now... I'm having conversations with his grandma. She's saying, you know, he's looking at different colleges and wants to play athletics here and there. He's got these opportunities. He made an interception for the high school. He's the captain of the football team. He was on the paper for this. He was a winning state pitcher for that. And I'm thinking, I remember when he was in second grade. And he had a few bumpy years in there. Few, right? <laughs> David said, yeah. But I, this young man right now, he loves Jesus. He thinks about his future. He's got an amazing reputation at school. He's a positive spiritual influence in people's lives. And this is just what I see of his life. I have no idea what Daniel's future is, but there's unspeakable potential in it. Meet any one of our students. Talk to him for more than two or three minutes. You will hear the potential in their life. I don't want to be the Pharaoh that says, hey, let's suppress them. Let's cut them down. Let's, no, 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 no. There's unspeakable potential in the value of every child's life. It's not just Moses. God looks at every child that way. And I want to be in concert with what God's doing in those lives. So, you know, that's why we invest so heavily in children's programs and ministry for, for babies and infants, for moms and dads. For, for, uh, that's why we're involved in the Gabriel Network. That's why we, we do camps. And stuff. My, my favorite week of this whole past year that left me more tired than anything else was VBS. I got to be around 50 kids every day. I didn't try and teach them anything because I was a children's pastor for a year and a half at Grace Assembly, and I'm no longer a children's pastor probably for a reason. I was really good at entertaining the kids for 30 minutes and getting them wound up, and then I turned to Kendra and be like, all right, and teach them. She's like, they're climbing the walls. They're running around. They're, they're jumping off of furniture. I'm like, yeah, it's fun. It's big. She's like, I can't, what? It? So, yeah, I lasted a short period of time, and then I was promoted into youth ministry, right? Because like, that was cool at that time. Um, you know, hey, let's go, get, let's go outside and run around for a while, and then we're going to come inside and be spiritual. Didn't work either, so now I'm working with grown-ups. So I'm kind of moving in that. There's unspeakable potential in every infant's life. Worship team, will you come? There's this beautiful summary that I came across in uh, one of my dusty books. And it talks about all the little tiny micro decisions and choices that happened just in these first couple chapters of his life that set up his future. I won't read it exactly because it's written in really old English. But he goes back to saying, the beginning of this story, there is some bad news. Pharaoh said, let all male children born to Hebrew families be thrown into the Nile. That was his edict. And the point of the author is he wants us to see how God took this decision of the enemy to try and kill off all the kids and God spun it around for good. He says, had it not been for Pharaoh's edict, Moses would have never been put into the Nile River. If Moses had never been put in the Nile River, Pharaoh's daughter would probably never have found him. Had Pharaoh's daughter not decided that specific day at that specific time, to, the Nile River's pretty big. Had she not decided to go to that spot in that river by those reeds, any little circumstance that prevented her from going to that spot that day the child might have not have ever been exposed and discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. The child could have died from starvation, exposure to the sun, or perhaps the child could have been found by an unfriendly Egyptian and thrown immediately out of the ark into the water. Additionally, had Moses not happened to be crying when she opened the ark, it might not have moved her compassion, or at any rate, might not have so stirred her heart as to take the boy for her son. In any of these contingencies, Moses, even if he would be saved by some further device of his mother's, would not have grown up with the education which alone qualified him to be the nation's leader and guide. 
nor the familiarity with the Egyptian court life, which enabled him to stand up boldly before the Pharaoh of his time and contend with him as equal. And thus, Pharaoh's satanic weapon, the edict itself, was turned against itself, and Pharaoh's edict brought about the exodus of the Israelites, which he was so anxious to hinder. We serve a God that can redeem even the arrows of the enemy. In this story, the gospel screams out to us all over the place. We see that no policy or decision that a man can make can hinder God bringing salvation to the world. We can see that in an infant's life is also prophecies of its future, just like we see Jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. We can also see that the freedom of a kingdom may be involved in the birth of a child. In the life of one child, there might be wrapped up the destinies of an empire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, speak to my brothers and sisters about their life. Talk to them about the practical things, where they live, who they know, what they daydream about, the exciting things their future holds, the possibilities and potential, and also the things which give them unrest. And Lord, inspire us, help us to increase our faith in you. You said faith is a gift you give to us. You even deposit the faith we need to believe in. You gift us the faith we need to believe about you to us. And I see in this story, not so much the heroic nature of an infant, because Moses as an infant could make no decision for himself. I see the importance of a mom and a dad some grown-ups who had faith in you. Who had faith in you about the potential of a child. And in so doing, threw themselves into your service with ingenuity, creativity, boldness, and courage. In order that whatever you had in store for that child, they wanted to protect it. I thank you for people around this congregation, some of who are physical moms and dads, and many, if not all of whom, are spiritual moms and dads to some kids, to some youth, to some young people. Lord, help us to protect the divine call and plan you have on every child so that you can use them as an instrument in leading generations out of darkness into light. And Lord, if there would be anyone here today that does not know your son, Jesus, and Lord and Savior, I pray in this moment right now, they would have the faith and the courage to simply confess to you their need for a Savior, their belief that you can and you will save them, and a willingness to turn away from their own leadership in their life and surrender to your leadership, to invite you to save them to put their faith and trust in you and to receive this beautiful gift of salvation that you have for each and every one of us. Lord, help our faith to grow. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me this morning? Here's how we're going to close our service today. I want to encourage you to take some time this week and go back through that story and find some things we didn't even bring up today. I hope that today was plowing through some of that field taking what's probably for a lot of you a familiar story and at least tilling it again and maybe inviting you to go in there and think some more introspectively, looking at your own life of faith, God's destiny on your life, things you're confident in and not confident. Go into that and just ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. He's the very best teacher, very best teacher. Human beings are gifted to teach the Bible, but the best teacher is the Holy Spirit. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna receive our offering, our tithes today. Worship team's going to lead us in a closing song. In fact, right now, our prayer team is coming. And this is a huge part of what we do. We know that I might have hit the nail on the head with what you needed to hear today. Or there's something else in your life I didn't touch on. But you would value just a moment or two to just confess this to the Lord or someone on the team and have them pray with you over a decision or a sickness or something in your life. Please take us up on this offer. We're here to bear your burdens. Then after the team has sung, After we spent some time in prayer, Pastor James will uh, give you one last thing to think about and let you go out of here. So if you'd like prayer at all, please come. Even as I begin to pray, please come and find someone to pray with. They'll be happy to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing for us today. It's our joy to return to you that 
first portion, which belongs to you. My prayer is that you'll help us to continue to understand how to wisely invest the funds you entrust to this church back into your kingdom so that we can reach more people for you, so that we can disciple more people for you, so that we can be a testimony in this community and that we can see your message spread across the earth. I pray health and strength and confidence and increase in faith over the lives of the people in this church. In your mighty name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.